This is going to be an abbreviated version of the talk, and I'm not going to use much PowerPoint. All of my points are powerful. Because I said that, I want to say something about the man who did use PowerPoint. I don't know how many of you are aware that uh, Dr. Peter Jones is arguably uh, the most prominent Christian theologian uh, in the U.S. and English-speaking world, maybe the world, on this issue of paganism, neo-paganism, and how it's infected the modern world. And he's a trained New Testament scholar, academically, but he's refused to limit his teaching and ministry to that over the last, what, two, three decades. He's dealt with this issue, and he's uh, known. So it's a real privilege to have him here. You're actually sitting under one of the most learned men on this maybe the most learned man on this particular issue. So now he'll forgive me for saying what I did about PowerPoint. Uh, <clears throat> this talk today professes nothing less than to lay out a different way of being a Christian than is most often assumed than many Christians uh, today. So it uh, would be in some uh, sense a highly controversial uh, Thesis, but that never stopped me before. Uh, theology, most of you know, means the study of God. Uh, in one sense, everybody is a theologian, even a professed atheist, because every person has a view of interest, view of and interest in God. But when we use the term theology, we usually denote an intentional, systematic investigation of God and his revelation. Uh, most Christians think theology is work that is done best in seminaries or the church. A theology defined in this way invites specialization. And though those specialties have included natural theology, which I don't support, but which is the study of nature as God's creation and what we can learn from that apart from the Bible and Jesus Christ. And then biblical theology, the study of the progressive unfolding of truth in the Bible. And then there's systematic theology, the arrangement of biblical teaching under prominent thematic heads, right? Ecclesiology, eschatology, angelology, and so forth. Then there's historical theology, sometimes called church history. They're not quite the same, but similar. The study of what Christians believed at various times during church history. Then there's apologetic theology, or just apologetics, right? How to defend the faith in a rational way. And then finally, there's pastoral or practical theology, what the Bible says about day-to-day -day individual and church life. Well, I'm going to talk today about something else. Uh, I'm going to talk today about cultural theology, and that really is what Runner is all about. If you'll read Joe's bio and my bio, you'll see that each of us is designated as a cultural theologian. That's not just like a little fancy name to make us feel important or something. That has a very specific and vital meaning. And just in the next few minutes, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, cultural theology is defined as the study of what God's full revelation teaches about culture and applying that teaching to pressing cultural issues. Uh, because the issues of our time have become specialized, the study of revelation must include a specialized concern for culture. Now, of course, culture has been around as long as man has, 
And therefore, cultural theology is not a specialty whose need just recently evolved. However, dramatic developments of culture in modern times in ideology, in technology, in jurisprudence, in medicine, economics, the arts, really presses serious Christians for a coherent grasp of godly truth to address these issues and others. Cultural theology is needed now more than ever. For instance, what does God's revelation have to say to the political views like socialism or liberalism or conservatism uh, or libertarianism or ideologies like Marxism, feminism, Islamism, uh, transgenderism, white privilege? What about new technologies like stem cell research or genetic manipulation or cloning or transhumanism or surrogate motherhood? Or consider theories of law, originalism, progressivism, sociological law, utilitarian law, natural law. These developments, contemporary or traditional, and many others, require a distinctly Christian evaluation. After all, Christians must glorify God, whether in eating or drinking or in whatever we do. That's what Paul says, in whatever we do, including how to vote in a political election, whether to support contraception or same-sex marriage, which movies or TV TV programs to watch, how to evaluate them. Christian painters and architects must know which art and architecture glorifies God. Christian code writers should consider how their faith should shape the field of IT. Christian business owners, salespersons, should know God's law as it pertains to business exchanges and selling products and offering services. Cultural theology is not, therefore, limited to intellectual fields like scholarship and ideology. Please do not leave Runner with the idea, well, unless I'm really a scholar or a college teacher, eh, not much of this was relevant. We will have failed if you leave with that idea. We also have to deal with ordinary tactile culture as we encounter it in our ordinary daily lives. So I've used this term, God's revelation. What do I mean by that? Um, after all if God's revelation and law is the source of our knowledge about how to apply truth to culture we need to know where to find it well there are three places and I would suggest no more than three creation Jesus Christ and the Bible these are not three revelations but a single revelation in three forms they work together and they may not be isolated from one another. This is why there should be no such thing as natural theology. Uh, The Bible occupies a priority in this triad, not because it's inherently more important than creation or Jesus Christ, but because it's the only source of objective, infallible knowledge of the other two. We can learn powerful truths from creation. The Bible itself is quite clear about that, and we must but not the truths of salvation and many specifics of morality. We can know of the historic person of Jesus Christ, apart from the Bible, but almost nothing else authoritative about him. Jesus Christ is more important than the Bible. He saves us from our sins. The Bible can't. But the Bible holds a certain priority in revelation, not redemption, but in revelation. 
Now, since the Bible was written many centuries ago, and most of the modern cultural topics have, have not yet appeared, it obviously doesn't and couldn't address most of these topics explicitly. You know that. That's almost self-evident. But Cornelius Van Til wrote this, and I hope that we can get the slide up there. This is a great quote, one of his best, eminently quotable. Here we go. There we go. Van Til writes, The Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of football games, of atoms, etc., directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. It tells us not only of the Christ and his work, but it also tells us who God is and where the universe about us has come from. It tells us about theism as well as about Christianity. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, the information on these subjects is woven into an inextricable whole. It is only if you reject the Bible as the word of God that you can separate the so-called religious and moral instruction of the Bible from what it says, for example, about the physical universe. The Bible is the revelatory light in terms of which we should see and interpret all of life. Now that brings us to the cultural mandate. Um, how many of you have heard of the cultural mandate before you came here to runner this week? Excellent. So I don't have to spend a long time on this. Uh, behind cultural theology is this rock-solid conviction that the Christian faith is designed to shape and reshape all of human life. Now that conviction is rooted in what's been called the cultural mandate. God created man to create culture for his glory. Adam and Eve weren't created merely to fellowship with God. It's amazing how many pietistic evangelicals get that idea. Adam and Eve were created, and God basically came down, and all they were there for is to have this wonderful, nearly seraphic, ethereal communion with God. That sounds very spiritual, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, they did fellowship with him, but that's not all of it. They were created to exert godly dominion over the rest of creation. I like the word that G.I. Packer once used. He said, we are God's deputy governors. Our deputy governors over the earth. We're his royal representatives, mediating God's will to the rest of creation. That's what we read in Genesis 1.26, right? Let's make man in our own image, God says. Let him have dominion. We're called to vocation, not just contemplation. So dominion or stewardship over creation is man and woman's chief earthly calling. Now man's eternal calling is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's in the words of the Westminster, Westminster Shorter, uh, Shorter Catechism, based on the confession. But our calling as regards the earth specifically is to subdue it for God's glory. Okay? Now, so man interacts with God's creation to lovingly impose God's prescriptive will on it. Now, man isn't called to leave creation as it is. He interacts with creation, adding his God-given creativity and ingenuity to improve it. Now, hear this. This means that although creation as it came from God's hand was very good, it wasn't everything God intended it to be. In short, creation isn't sufficient. It's very good, but it isn't sufficient. It needs man, and God intended it to be that way. Just as man was to grow and mature in devotion and obedience to God, so creation itself 
The rest of creation was to grow and mature under man's governance and guidance. God didn't create fruit trees simply for men to admire the fruit. The fruit was to be eaten, particularly apple pies. Horses weren't simply to be contemplated. They were to be used for human transport. Water wasn't to be just marveled over. It was to be used for consumption and cleaning and bathing. That is, the creation, including man himself, wasn't to be static but dynamic. And that's what Joe was addressing this morning, partly in his talk about the distinctively Christian philosophy of, of uh, history. So the cultural mandate is a pre-fall, or cre- or that is, it's a creational ordinance. So did God rescind the cultural mandate after the fall? No. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God restated to Noah the mandate he first gave in Eden. Sin, of course, did introduce two modifications, right? We don't live in a pre-fall world. Because of sin, man would suffer hardships posed by a creation under his curse. Man's work would be tiresome. Women's childbearing would be painful. The cultural mandate would be hard work. But it's still God's work for man. Second, all people must be redeemed by the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be restored to their God-honoring as opposed to their previous God-defying cultural mandate. Now, do you understand that that is a principal goal of the gospel, what I just told you? Is everybody listening or are you all just kind of falling asleep? A principal goal of the gospel is to restore us to the proper way of fulfilling the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate. Not just to take you to heaven when you die, or I would even suggest principally to take you to heaven when you die, but to restore you to this calling, this original calling. Cultural theology shows Christians how to think about the cultural mandate. Now, next point is biblical law. Cultural theology presupposes that the Bible is designed to offer truth and guidance in all areas of life. The Bible is God's word, and it's not God's word only in matters pertaining to the church or prayer or personal evangelism. Now, the fact that the Bible has a remarkably lot to say about cultural matters, including instruction, the Bible does say a great deal about all these matters. There are so many, in fact, one would almost seem to have to work intentionally to miss them. I mean, God's law covers cultural topics as diverse as food and uh, cooking, clothing, personal cleanliness, politics, education, farming, building, music, jurisprudence, money, economics, warfare, health, marriage, crime, penology, abortion, homosexuality, substance abuse, and much, much more. The problem isn't that the Bible is silent on these cultural topics. The problem is that many Christians read around these topics or simply ignore them or find them insignificant or spiritualize them. When you point out Old Testament texts about some of these things, people will say, well, but, you know, that's really in the Old Testament. Or if you point out a New Testament text, they'll say, yeah, but that's not really the spiritual part of the Bible. That's actually a reduction of biblical authority is what it is. If liberals did that, as they often do, would say, well, they're just attacking the Bible. When conservatives do it, We say, well, that's okay because they're being spiritual. But they're false. Uh, If God's word is binding, it's binding in all that it says, not simply in spiritual, heavenly, or non-cultural topics. 
I like what Henry Meter writes. This book, the Bible, therefore, besides teaching us the way of salvation, provides us with the principles which must govern the whole of our life, including our thinking as well as our moral conduct. Not only science and art, but our home life, our business, our social and political problems must be viewed and solved in light of scriptural truth and fall under its direction, close quote. Now, of course, this doesn't mean the Bible is intended to furnish an exhaustive supply of cultural knowledge. The Bible doesn't tell us the value of pie or the duration of the Ottoman Empire or the recipe for apricot jam or the formula for carbon monoxide or the details of human DNA. But it does establish the basic principles in terms of which all of these cultural topics and others must be understood. And it does lay down God's law on many specific cultural topics, which leads to the next point. I'm drilling down as I go here. Is theology primarily for the church? Well, the answer to that question uh, is um, no. Now, some theologians are ecclesiastical or confessional theologians. They're called to provide doctrinal direction to their particular church their particular denomination. So there's Lutheran theology, Baptist theology, Roman Catholic theology, Pentecostal theology, Presbyterian theology, and so on. But if man must live not by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from God's mouth, then the entire Bible must govern our lives in its entirety. Oh, a little pastoral exhortation here. If all of the Bible must govern all of our lives, and I think about everybody here would agree with that, you'd better, since the Bible says so, you'd better spend time reading it so you know it. You'd better know what's in the Bible, so you'd better spend a lot of time reading it so you know how to please God. If we must glorify God in all we do, if we take God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We must do this not just in our individual lives, our families, or churches, but in our eating and voting and sexual and exercise and spending habits and more broadly in economics and technology and theater and movies and education and science and music. The Bible is designed to govern our entire lives and culture in its entirety. Theology is essential to the life of the church, but, but must not be limited to the church. Now, you go to an even more controversial topic. Next question. Is theology privileged? Now, many theologians today, if they heard this, would fall off their chairs. So don't fall off your chair or you'll be very embarrassed. Um, when we speak this way, uh, we seem to be veering far away from the concerns of traditional theology. Now, if you pick up almost any textbook on systematic theology, you'll not see biblical teaching categorized according to economics or education or music or psychology or technology. Hmm, that's interesting. This is true in all sectors of the church. It was true of Thomas Aquinas. If you read Karl Barth's uh, Church Dogmatics, uh, conservative systematic theology, a popular one in the U.S. is Wayne Grudem. Very, very good. But you won't find these topics, for the most part, ever mentioned in there, or only slightly. This is because these topics, while addressed by the Bible explicitly or implicitly, are not categories most theologians believe most important. These things I've just talked about. 
Theologians define what the theological categories are. And cultural categories aren't deemed most important theologically to most theologians. But I'd like to make a point, and it's a simple point, but it's momentous. The Bible, not theologians, should dictate what topics are important. Can I get an amen, Joe? The Bible, not theologians, should dictate what topics are important. Now, this brings us to a vital, though perhaps a jarring distinction. If man's chief earthly calling is the cultural mandate, and if the Bible provides the truths in terms of which we must fulfill that mandate, theology as it has been traditionally understood is not the central use of the Bible. Theology is a theoretical science. It's not unlike biology, mathematics, and language arts. It's man's attempt to arrange the data, the biblical revelation, into a systematic or topical order, just as biologists or physicists do with their data. Living things, or in the case of physics, material things, the material universe. Both of these theoretical sciences are necessary. One of them dealing with biblical revelation, the one dealing with creational revelation, but they are subsets of more fundamental use, a more fundamental use of the Bible. That use is to fulfill the cultural mandate before the face of God whom we worship. That is our calling. Systematic theology, as traditionally understood, is one necessary way of doing that. But so is discovering the biblical view of animal treatment. Economic market mechanisms. Musical beauty. And so on. These aren't somehow less significant or less uh, theological than how sin entered the world, how the divine and human natures of Christ relate, and when Christians might expect the second advent. They only seem less important because Christianity has assumed that individual salvation, rather than a more comprehensive cultural redemption, of which salvation is a central part, is what the Bible really is all about. But it's not. Now this this brings us to another question. I promise you I will get to the end of questions soon. One barrier to many intelligent Christians considering a biblical application to culture is that they consider this concern the province of philosophy. All these things I've been talking about, but not theology. I mean, philosophy deals thoughtfully with the broad issues of life, while theology is limited to specific leading themes of the Bible. I mean, historically, Christians have usually considered the Bible the source of knowledge for theology, while allowing common universal reason and experience to be the source for philosophy. Put bluntly, this meant that theology was to be Christian and philosophy could be a-Christian or non-Christian. Theology was churchly and philosophy was worldly. This also meant that the broad views of culture weren't treated in a distinctly Christian way because they weren't defined as deemed as significant as theological topics. Yet it is precisely what we term philosophy that is so broad that a Christian philosophy must inform Christian theology and not vice versa. Now, I know that sounds so odd, perhaps, but I think I can demonstrate that it's true. Christian philosophy lays the groundwork for Christian theology. Listen to this powerful quote by Gordon Spikeman. Theology finds its place within the larger contours of a biblical worldview explicated in a Christian philosophy. 
The fundamental premise of this Christian philosophy lies in its commitment to the biblical teaching that all of reality is so ordered by the creative work of God that his word stands forever as the sovereign, dynamic, redeeming law for all of life. You say, well, yeah, but I mean, we we need to start by studying the Bible, and that's so true. But we never do that in a vacuum. We always do that with an understanding, and that understanding is how we live within this created order. So we must know something about this created order, the spheres of this order, so we can interpret the Bible properly. That's why a Christian philosophy or a Christian worldview is necessary to interpret the Bible right. And yes, as we read the Bible, we refine our Christian worldview and our Christian understanding. But we can't simply pick up our Bible and start reading it without having an understanding of what this world is all about. The Bible, if the Bible's designed for all of life, then thinking about all of life in a biblical way is Christian philosophy. In fact, this is just what a Christian or biblical worldview is. If we include cultural theology in what has traditionally been known as philosophy, we can say, as John M. Frame says, that philosophy and theology are virtually identical, or should be identical. In this way, Christian theology, philosophy, and that's what cultural theology actually is, a biblical worldview, is our guide for thinking and living in the world. It fulfilled precisely this role among the faithful in the eras covered by biblical history. I won't go into all of that, but that's what a biblical worldview is, looking at everything in light of the Word of God and creation as they're working together. So I'm going to save time here. I'm going to deal now with objections to cultural theology because I think this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, So let's go to that section, Ryan. First, here's the first objection. Uh, These cultural issues, like a Christian view of economics or science or politics or the arts, are at best secondary to issues like soteriology and eschatology and pneumatology. Cultural theology distracts us from the truly important topics of the Christian life. That's a very common objection, I would say. Now, the people who level this objection don't understand why God created man in the first place. Man's primordial and abiding calling is to exercise dominion in the earth for the Lord's glory, the cultural mandate. The gospel of Jesus Christ restores us to being the right kind of dominionists. Everybody is engaged in the cultural mandate in one way or another. Now, does everyone here grasp that point? Unbelievers engage in the cultural mandate in a very depraved, idolatrous, twisted form. That, by the way, is the true conflict in culture. You have unbelievers over here obeying their version of the cultural mandate. That's the problem. They are cultivating. As Joe likes to say, beautiful metaphor. They're constantly plowing. But they're plowing according to their anti-Christian presuppositions. And here we are, plowing according to our Christian presuppositions. And guess what? The plows collide. And that's why we have godless music and godless art and godless churches and neo-paganism. And on the other hand, we have godly culture. And that's where the conflict is. A conflict of visions. Two kinds of cultural plowing, you see. Um... Of course, God in his common grace, that is his general kindness toward the world, allows even the worst of sinners to produce a great deal of virtuous products of culture. But when they do this, 
They're acting inconsistently with their basic idolatrous life. So God doesn't save us in order merely to restore an internal vertical relation with himself. If that were the case, God would simply kind of rapture us out. Right when we trusted in Christ, we would be raptured to heaven. God doesn't do that. He converts us so that we will exercise dominion in his name. Um, <clears throat> therefore, by stressing God's glory, not just uh, in the family and church, but in free economic exchanges that benefit everyone, by painting portraits that reflect the beauty of creation, despite being marred by sin, by developing technology that enhances man's life and allows the gospel to spread more readily and rapidly. Doing these things, I say, aren't somehow secondary to attending church and holding Bible studies and writing systematic theology. They're not secondary to those things. Listen carefully. But somebody might ask, but isn't Jesus more important than any of these things? Of course he is. But recall that even Christology is a theoretical reflection on divine truth. It is not divine truth. Any of you here read some of the church fathers? Some of it's really great. And some of it's really bad. But I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the Bible. It's not God's revelation. The issue isn't whether Jesus is more important than music. It's whether the theoretical category... The theoretical category of Christology is more important than the theoretical category of music. When we reflect on the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, we're doing theology. That is a necessary task. But whenever we reflect on the Bible's teaching concerning music, that also is a necessary task. Jesus Christ is much more important than music, but hammering out a particular theology about Jesus Christ is not more important than producing a theology of music. See the difference there. In other words, cultural theology is just as necessary and important as systematic theology. Now, there's a second objection. Um, Andrew, we're not going to engage in cultural theology. It's dangerous. It'll entice us to worldliness since it's concerned with external and worldly things rather than internal or heavenly things. Now, this objection would likely be prominent among many modern evangelicals. It shows us they have an impoverished view of creation and sin and the lordship of Christ. Let's take these quickly in order, and I'm almost done. Um, man's problem is not creation or even culture. Man's problem is sin. Boy, you must understand this. Leave runner understanding this distinction. Alcohol isn't a problem. Alcoholic abuse is a problem. Sex isn't a problem. Sexual immorality is a problem. Politics isn't a problem. Political tyranny or anarchy is a problem. Non-church music isn't a problem. Evil non-church music is a problem. This is another way of saying that the created order does not lead us away from God. The created order leads us back to God. Paul makes this very plain in Romans chapter 1. The created order should draw us to the creator. We make a mistake when we assume that by avoiding creation, we can avoid worldliness. This is where this impoverished view of sin gets us into real trouble. Sin isn't only or even mainly an external acts. The Bible teaches sin derives from the human heart. 
If we think we can avoid sin by retreating from the world or culture back into our heart, we'll have a very rude awakening. There's greater sin in the human heart than there is in culture or in the world. In fact, there's only sin in the world because there is sin in the human heart. Therefore, we will not fall into worldliness if, for instance, we demand our electing representatives incorporate God's moral law in their political choices. Studying and performing popular music won't lead us away from God if our hearts are given to him. If we design and build houses and otherwise produce architecture molded by biblical truth, we're not in danger of falling into worldliness as long as our heart burns to please the triune God. But I guess perhaps the most objectionable aspect of that second objection is that it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ in all of life. You've probably heard that adage, haven't you? If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. How many of you have heard that? I'm just wondering how many people have actually explored the implications of that aphorism. Cultural theology demands we recognize Jesus as Lord of all things. This uh, objection creates an irony. As Christians retreat from cultural concerns, hear this well, as Christians retreat from cultural concerns, on the grounds that these concerns will make us worldly, these believers often, in fact, become worldly. Why? Because they don't allow God's truth to govern their attitudes toward culture. They simply assimilate the world's ideas surrounding them. For example, if we say that the Bible shouldn't be applied to politics, we might end up voting for a pro-abortion or socialistic candidate on the grounds that the Bible isn't interested in the matters beyond the family and the church. You see, when we avoid cultural theology, we don't avoid worldliness. We simply become worldly in matters that we believe theology shouldn't be interested in. We import the world's ideas into areas that we think are neutral. But there are no neutral areas. Final objection. Okay, Andrew. Cultural theology diverts us from the Bible, since when we read the Bible, we learn about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and salvation and the second coming, but not about architecture and music and education and commerce. Now, the most obvious response to this objection is that it is demonstrably wrong. The Bible has an abundance to say about these cultural matters and many more, but for too long, Christians have whittled away those parts of the Bible that they think are secondary or unnecessary. Now, the most notorious example is the inclination to spiritualize the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of that. Most commentators are embarrassed by the erotic language of Song of Solomon and interpret it as a metaphorical love song between Christ and the church. Oh, and they whack so pious in all of these texts. And if you read them, I must say, I, these days I can't read them without just laughing out loud. They come upon a very erotic passage, and oh, heaven forbid that couldn't be. <laughs> this must talk about the beautiful metaphorical relationship of the union between Christ and the church. Actually, this is very erotic language between a man and a woman about to be married. And there's nothing sinful about it. It's beautiful, it's holy, it's right. And if this verdict isn't spiritual enough for modern evangelicals, they're really saying they are more spiritual than the Bible. Do not be more spiritual than the Bible. You can't be. 
Don't think you have an idea of what is spiritual. And it's better than God's idea. That's Gnosticism. My father really helped me with this. He's 85 now. It's a mighty man of God. He says, son, never forget the Bible has more to say about hell than it does about heaven. And it says more about money than it does about hell. If you check it out, he's right about that. But for some reason, people think that economic issues aren't really important issues. And we should cast them aside in favor of talk about heaven and hell, especially heaven. Because hell's controversial today. Well, this really is to operationally deny the authority of the Bible. To give up vast swaths of God's revelation. In conclusion, cultural theology is the theological project of the Runner Academy, EICC, Truth Exchange, Center for Cultural Leadership. The most urgent need of our time is not a revival and restoration of denominational distinctives, or an ecclesiastical theology that leaves the culture untouched. Not fighting about infant baptism or pedo-baptism, or eternal security or non-eternal security, or the sacraments or the ordinances, or church government. I'm not saying they're unimportant. Those are not the pressing issues of our time. It's not simply Christian theology and Christ's church that are under satanic attack today, but the very foundations of our society and even the cosmos itself. This academy is named after Evan Runner. Here are some words, and I conclude with this, that he uttered nearly 50 years ago that are even more germane today. Yet Christianity, in spite of much of the apparent history of the movement, is not a matter merely of devoting a certain part of our life to some or other church institutions or of our giving our assent to this or that more or less orderly body of theological judgments. To be Christian is to live whole human lives in this creation of God's, by the light of God's word and with the aid of his spirit. So, Andrew, I want to make sure that I get predestination exactly right. Well, good for you. But don't think you have fulfilled your obligation before God if and when you do that. The most fundamental and urgent battle of our time is not to be thought of in the first place as one for the preservation of some familiar and accepted church organization or of some system of theological propositions, though both of these may have their subordinate importance. The struggle of our times goes much deeper. It is a struggle for the religious direction of human society in its totality. The battle of our time is to determine which spirit is to possess our hearts and give direction to our civilization. Even to preserve the organized churches and whatever theology may be dear to us, we shall have to fight for a more integral Christian faith to sense the religious unity of man's life in the world or there will follow the last remaining steps almost imperceptibly in their advance to a thoroughly secular way of life in which there is no place for the good shepherd's voice. That's a very long sentence. You know what it means? Are you interested in sound theology? Everybody here, who here is interested in having sound biblical theology? Raise your hand. Every hand should be up. That's, that's what he's saying. Good. If you want to preserve sound theology, you had better fight the cultural battles. That's what he's saying. If you don't fight the cultural battles, the theology will collapse. And it's happened again and again historically.
It is not possible in the 20th, of course now the 21st century, for Christians to make a good profession only within the secure shadows of the institutional church. I hope that you'll go online and get that statement. Can they get that digitally, Ryan? Right, that can be gotten digitally. Get that and read it and read it and read it and read it. It's very powerful. And hope you can show it to your pastor. Hope he's not too offended by it. Generally good pastors, even if they don't agree with every single aspect of it, will say, yeah, we need to fight the cultural battles. That's what Runner is all about, cultural theology. Not against denominational theology. By no means against the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgium, uh, 39 Articles. In no way against any of those. But to preserve those and doctrinal soundness, we must fight the cultural battles. We're not going to take questions. Because of that, I'd like us to close in prayer. Let's bow our heads. I think I would like... uh, Ryan, would you be willing to pray a prayer of dedication that we at Runner will be committed to this all-encompassing theology, the Lordship of Christ in all of life?